Psychology in Seattle. So, Bob, I have a few things I want to talk with you today and get your opinion on. And why don't we just record the conversation and actually put it on the Internet and just see if anyone's listening. What do you say? That sounds interesting. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am uh, also a therapist in practice here in Seattle, and you and I have been friends for 25 years from way back when in graduate school. So this first question comes from patron Adam. He writes, if a client comes to therapy seeking validation for an affair and justification for the behaviors, what would you say? Bob, what do you think? I say, yeah, validation, absolutely. A person is in, it's in your interest, it's in our interest to understand what it is that drives us into behaviors that are so um, damaging to relationship. Justification? Uh, what up with that? So you just ask that. Um, yeah, like, what's the function of getting justification? Because that feels defensive, doesn't it? Meaning that they're trying to defend against something. Uh -huh. What are you defending against might be the question. Oh, uh, probably, if it were me, the agony of the upset of my partner. Yeah. So to come to terms with the agony of your partner. It's, maybe it's intolerable. If a person who wants justification, perhaps, you help me, but perhaps it's intolerable to think of and really have a sense of how I have hurt my partner. I mean, I've done that. I mean, not with affairs, but... I've certainly defended myself or justified myself in the face of my partner's pain or other people's pain. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like um, um, narcissistic, I guess, is a, I don't love that word, but self-centered, self-centered, right? Right. And we sort of have a natural bent to protect ourselves and um, the idea that we've hurt somebody. Wow, man, that's hard to take. Yeah, it's a fundamental, you know, it's interesting that you broadened it out to that um, experience. This is a fundamental thing that I'm sure you see as well with your couples that I see in my couples and I guess in my individuals when they describe the fights that they're in. They will say, you know, when they're sitting on my couch, they'll, they'll come in and they frequently will say the last fight they got in, the last significant right. fight they got in. And so they might say, okay, well, we got in a fight on Sunday, okay. What happened? Well, so I came home from working on the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, my wife wa had already eaten dinner. And um, I was like, you know, what kind of bullshit is this? Like, he's like, you don't even care about me. And the wife at that point is the first thing she recognizes and maybe in the moment as well is, my husband's hurt. I, you know, I, I hurt my husband's feelings, whether I meant to or not. I, I hurt his feelings. Instead of saying something like and being tolerant of that acknowledgement of, oh, I hurt my husband's feelings. Yeah. It becomes defensive. You bec the, the wife becomes defensive and says something like, um, well, I don't know why you feel that way. It's not like we always eat dinner together. Right. And there's this knee-jerk reaction to try to eliminate the other person's hurt rather than just acknowledging it and saying, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and people learn this in their families. They also, uh, through various different experiences, have a hard time with rejection because they've been abandoned or whatever. And the, the, they, uh, there's just um, self-sabotaging human tendency 
and tendency is a soft word, a universal tendency, I would say, <laughs> that when someone is upset with us and they're hurt by us, one of the fears we go to is this person is now going to reject me. My husband is angry at me because I ate without him. And although I, I, it's only, I can only sense like a tiny shadow of, of this reality, um, the bigger uh, thing that's happening in my body right now is I'm worried he's going to leave me. Yeah. And that will hurt. And so how do I end that fear? Well, I got to end his feelings. Right. I got to tell him, uh, you don't have that feeling. That feeling is wrong. Right. And you need to not have that feeling. You're ridiculous. And then you get into this tit for tat. And really all that's happening in the moment is um, – they're very sad and guilty and shameful that they hurt someone's feelings and they're terrified that by implication that means they're going to be alone and rejected. And if they just said that, like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry I hurt your feelings. I didn't mean to. I, you know, just this was my thinking. It's not an excuse, but, you know, I, I, I didn't realize you would care, but I could see why you did. And... I have to tell you right now, from the intensity of your reaction, I'm terrified you're going to, like, divorce me. I know that's not rational, but I just want to tell you, like, your tone of voice scares me. And that's why I'm not quite regulated right now. And I, I maybe I need you to reassure me that you're. this doesn't mean you're going to divorce me. Yeah. When I see couples do that kind of work, then I know that they're going to be fine. They're fine. Most people, there's not a lot of space between... Um, uh, hearing the complaint and launching into the defensiveness or the self-justification. Right. Yeah, it's it's something that is universal, like I said, uh, even for people who are raised well, uh, they have it too. It's something that we just have no education on. We get education on how to drive a car, we get education on how to do math and and why don't we get why isn't there a class on how to have healthy conflict in in, in a relationship? Um, to me, that should be half of elementary school, but you know, there's a little bit of that in elementary school, but not enough in in my opinion. So I, don't, I never got anything like that when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah, because. We as a society, and this is me on a soapbox. Um, oh, you know what? <laughs> Just before I, Colleen says hi, by the way. Oh, she says she loves the podcast and she, she likes it. She didn't call it that, but she likes it when you get on a soapbox. <laughs> okay, well, this is for you, Colleen. Uh, we have capitalistic roots and we have roots in uh, an ethic around hard work and production. And also of labor exploitation. The rich, uh, we, you know, we, uh, schools emerged in our society while our society was at its worst in terms of its exploitation of the people from, by rich people and politicians and, and white men and, you know, the whole power, power, power class of early America. Right. And schools taught people to do what? They taught people to sit down and shut up and uh, uh, salute the flag, and uh, do what you're told, and be productive, and aspire for grades from on high, 
from this arbitrary leader on high. Oh, this is fascinating. And 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 if, and if you imagine in that we're still doing that. Oh yeah. And so imagine if you're a kid and you're not interested in that style of of society. You want to be more egalitarian and more supportive and more uh you know uh involved in the individuals desires which often coincide with production it just isn't on the schedule of the man and so uh you know teaching people to conflict well has nothing to do with profit <laughs> although it probably does but it doesn't have anything directly to do with profit sure and it also gives the impression that people have power you know and that they should be heard and that's not what schools are designed for. And no matter how much progressive teachers talk about how things have changed in, in certain institutions, it's still largely the same as it was 50, 100 years ago. Um, you know, just try to have ADHD <laughs> or try to be a creative thinker in school and say, you know what? I don't want to do this math test. I'd rather do it in an art form. And I know some teachers allow for that for sure, but... Uh, 2019, you know, we're still stuck in the past. And, you know, lo and behold, suicide rates are going up. Anxiety rates are going up. Depression is going up. Loneliness is going up. Everyone's turning to the Internet for uh, solace. And we're just more and more isolated. And we still keep educating our populace in the same goddamn way. It's like, think about it. And they're trying to do something. I know teachers are trying to do something. I'm not... This isn't a, you know, You're talking about social momentum. You're not talking about teachers or individuals. You're talking about our trends. Trends. Yeah. And our culture. Yeah. And because it's not so... I know teachers who actually understand, you know, teachers go to grad, especially today, and they learn all this theory. And they're like, they come out of grad school going, I'm going to change the world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a brand new style of teacher. But then you got administration fuckers. And then you have parents who especially in the Seattle area, my God, I mean, I don't know if you've seen this, but especially in Bellevue and Redmond, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, oh, yeah. the the kids of those people are um, so over-focused on grades and mm. getting into a good school. You know, I grew up in Seattle. No one in Seattle, I, I didn't know a single person except for one friend of mine who was Vietnamese, and, you know, had extremely Vietnamese parents who were, you know, wouldn't let him go out. And, um, and uh, but aside from him, no one was interested in going to an Ivy League school. No one was thinking about prestige. The only thing anyone was thinking about back in the 80s was UW was better than Wazoo. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> University of Washington versus Washington State University <laughs> uh, there, there's a rival, obviously, and UW has always been harder to get into, and, sure. and so, and it's a bigger school and has more prestigious uh, institutions within it. Yeah, uh, Marshall Linehan, for example. Sure, and uh, that was the only concern: was uh, were your grades good enough to get into UW, or are you kind of an average, you know, party, or, or did you party sufficiently in high school so that you actually have to go to Wazoo? <laughs> Lo and behold. Like eighty percent of my friends went to Wazoo, and oh, and, and only that. a handful of them went to, went to UW. No kidding. Yeah. So, um, 
that was all that we thought about. Now you go to where I grew up on the east side, Issaquah, yeah. Bellevue, those areas. They have walls in the school that brag about kids going to Harvard and Stanford and Brown. And, really? Yeah. And and you and I look at that poster and I'm like, so what if you're not interested in going to Brown? What if you want to go to community college, you know, or a tech school, or you don't even want to go to college? There's no wall for those people. And the way these parents talk, it, so it's just getting worse, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. Um, you know, because I, I was involved in this camp where uh, for 11 years or more, every fall, they would take the whole school up to the mountains for a few days, and they would teach all these life skills. And I was in charge of a lot of it, sex education, drug and alcohol, emotional support, all this kind of stuff. And it was really great. And... Whenever I would try to introduce something a little bit more involved, uh, the teachers and the parents, I would always get pushback on it. Like, well, what's the point? You know, how does that really help them get into Harvard? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, and to hear these kids talk about the amount of pressure that they feel uh, to, to have good grades. Now, I know there are plenty of other communities in the United States where that's not the case, but I'm telling you in Seattle, it's, it's a problem. And kids are, you know, suffering. And I just, I feel from, I'm just like, you know, when I was 17, uh, so I don't know if I've ever told you this, Bob, I probably have. Oh, well. Um, So I had, I halfway, about early in my junior year, so my entire life, or pretty much, you know, I'm going to sneeze. I had been really focused on getting good grades and because I wanted to do well and I pushed myself and I worried and I took hard classes. And then about halfway through my junior year in high school, I figured out mathematically that I, if I got all D's from that, as long as I graduated, but I could get the worst possible grades from that point forward, I would already get into the University of Washington. Because back then they just indexed your test scores and your grades. And I figured out what GPA I could possibly end up with if I, wow. if I tanked all my, the classes. I looked up on the chart, and, and based on the past 20 years in terms of what the index was established, the threshold yeah. was, I was well above that even if I tanked the rest because my test scores were good enough and yeah. my grades Your had grades. been already good enough. No shit. So, so I just stopped trying. Really? I actively tried to flunk my classes wow. because I considered it illogical to try when it didn't do me any good. There was nothing, I was getting nothing out of, out of doing it. I had no idea that I might actually be missing out on learning things. <laughs> sure. When you're 17 and you're looking at getting good grades, you're not thinking about the learning, you're thinking about the score. Right. So what was your joy quotient when you made that change? Oh, man, so much. Like, really? I started skipping class. Nice. I stopped paying attention. This one teacher, and I feel bad for her, I was kind of a... A dick in her class. Oh, were you, were you a teenager? Were you? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I wasn't like super dickish, but I blew her off a lot. Let's just say that. Uh-huh. And she was always trying to motivate me as oh. English classes. She was always trying to motivate, and she was a new teacher. She was always trying to motivate me to hmm. get interested, and and I could tell that she saw me as a deadbeat, like one of the one of the kids who never did well in school. Huh. And even though I tanked all my classes. I still had the highest honor because I still couldn't really f- – because this doesn't take much to get good, like passable grades 
in high school. You know what I mean? It's not hard to get a C or uh-huh. a, a B in high school, I don't think. Uh-huh. And I, so I still ended up getting like a, I don't know, like a 3.8 or something. Was it your cumulative for the in, whole time? Yeah, in the end, yeah. You, well, you failed miserably at failing. <laughs> well, also for graduation, when they give you those accolades, they don't have your final semester's grades yet. Oh, okay. So it was based on everything aside from that. And I think if they would have figured that in, I would have had more like a 3.7 or 3.6 or something. But yeah. Anyway, at graduation, I'm wearing, because they, they give you that big sash. It's yeah. a big yellow, you know, the tassels were for like a 3.5 or something, and the big sash was for like a 3.83 three or something. Yeah. And I, I come around a corner, and she looks at me, and she sees the sash. Oh. And, and I, I, at first, I was like, ha-ha, you didn't know I was actually a good student. And then I instantly felt bad, because I, I could see it in her face that... <laughs> She was like, wait, so this guy's smart and he was blowing me off in class. You know, I, I, had, I graduated to a certain level of maturity where I could actually feel for my teachers in that way. Yeah, yeah. And anyway, so if you're listening out there, I forget your name. <laughs> I'm sorry. So getting back to Patron Adam's question about, um, you know, if a client comes to therapy seeking validation for an affair or justification for their behaviors, what would I say? Depends on the goal. You know, if someone comes in and they're working on PTSD and that's the sole thing they're working on, then it's kind of irrelevant. You sure. Know, I'd say how, so if they just started seeking validation, I mean, I wouldn't offer valid, uh, you know, validation for sure, but I would say, I might say something like, so I'm getting the impression that you're seeking validation for this affair. Uh, I, I, we don't have to get into that necessarily, but, um, you know, you came here to work on PTSD. So does this do you want to start folding in this topic into it? Because it's, it, it's to me, it sounds like another goal in therapy and the person might be like, no, 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 I'm here to work on PTSD. Never mind. And I'm like, okay, so let's get back to that. So it really just depends on the, on the goal. Yeah. Um, now most people are coming in to me and I'm guessing to you, Bob, with just kind of the general goal of they want to improve their relationships. Yeah. So, Seeking validation for an affair is absolutely relevant to that, not only because it pertains to their relationships in their real life, but it also pertains to the relationship between therapist and client. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. And so um, now this is a a policy or an approach that I've developed over the years because I've actually had a number of clients in my 20 plus years actually do this to me. People tend not to do it in the way that maybe – stereotyped in the media where, you know, the worried well come to therapy and all they want is a therapist to pat them on the back. Oh, yeah. In my experience, uh, clients uh, want that on some level, but they also don't really want that. If they want just full support, they can talk to their friend because friends tend to be fully supportive in general. And what people are looking for is an actual person that has things to say and, and has reactions and is willing to say whatever is relevant and, and which can be sometimes not supportive per se or not validating. So, and it, and again, it depends on what we mean by validation, right? You can, well, validate, yeah. you can validate the urge to seek validation, but you might not actually validate the affair. You're you not know? going to validate the invalid. Right. What do you mean? 
I mean that um, you're not going to coddle and make nice, nice and say, oh, there, there, it's okay, it's okay. You might be matter of fact and frank about two things. One is here's the consequences of this behavior. This is really painful to your person, your partner, right? And there's no getting out of that, you know? Face it or not, it's still there. I mean, this is blunt terms. I don't think I'd say this directly to somebody under most circumstance. At the same time, though, is um, generally people don't get into relationships with the idea that they're going to mess with somebody. And so if I find myself in an affair, um, something got me there. Maybe it's something I didn't like. I don't know about you, Kirk, but I've learned a tremendous amount about myself just from being in the relationship that I'm in. And um, uh, affair isn't part of my history. Um, at the same time though, I didn't know what it was going to be like to be close with somebody until I was close with her. And the things that I have emerged for me are not things I would have known or predicted about myself. And so let's say I've got a client who's, um, somehow they're in an affair. Most people don't seek them out. They don't like, Oh, I know I'm going to go cheat, but they find themselves in the thing somehow or other. And it's in our interest to understand, um, uh, how did the dominoes fall that, you know, here's where you are, right? right? And this does not mean it's good or bad. It's it's not about approval. It's just about recognizing, well, what led to what led to what? And how is that understandable? Because everything is understandable. Right. The um, problem, problem with the understandable is people think understandable means excusable or approval. It's not any of that. It's just like we are all the same person. Right. Everything that's in you is in me. And everything that's in me is in Colleen. And... um um we can actually practice compassion, not the coddling, kiss my own ass bullshit, but like, how did I get here? Right. When, and in fact, if I want to change it, um, ha- developing a compassionate attitude is essential. Exactly. Yeah. In order for anyone to change the future behavior, they usually have to understand why they did their yeah. past behavior. Right. And looking at something... Um, through that lens of, okay, how did I get here? There's a there's a logic to how I got here. Yeah, logic, right. Nicely put. And and often that logic involves needs that need to be met. We, yeah. it's, I find that to be a useful uh, lens to look through. Is yeah, we have a lot of needs that we seek to get met, and when we're not paying attention to that, uh, those needs. Or and or our life isn't really set up to meet those needs, then we're gonna we're gonna compromise our own values to get our needs met, or we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot to get our needs met. Yeah, and uh, if we understand our needs from the start, then we can actually orient our lives towards those needs in a healthy way, so we don't shoot ourselves in the foot. Um, having said all that, I actively tell people that I. Uh, I act. I actively tell clients who have talked with me about this, whether they're contemplating affairs or actually in the midst of an affair, that what they're doing is harmful and immoral. I, I just I flat out tell them that. I find that it's it's what I believe. One and yeah. two, I I find that there's no use beating around the bush with clients. Um, it'd be the same if, if someone was seeking validation for stealing a car or being involved in gang violence or something, which I've been asked to validate before. Oh, I'm, you can't validate the invalid, and, and would you, yeah, absolutely. But These I'm also going to. But I'm also going to actively use the word harmful, harmful. and immoral, uh-huh. uh, because I find, and maybe we've talked about this before, that 
in our society and and I think a lot in therapy offices the notion of morality is being discussed but not openly and I think it should be discussed morality meaning that we all have a duty as human beings to not harm other human beings willingly uh, we can accidentally harm other people at times we certainly do uh, but we have a duty and I f- and that's a human that's a human moral that all of us have except for psychopaths but you know most of us have it even psychopaths kind of have it when you say moral I think built into the DNA code and uh, a social good that needs to be talked about more right. directly okay uh, there's a there's a reason why people are dicks on YouTube it's because oh, there's yeah. not enough talk about morality and like do, being a part of society and uh, uh, thinking about your behavior in the conglomerate and what that does to your it comes back at you <laughs> like we create the society that we live in and then you, and then people are upset that they're swimming around in a polluted cesspool and they're like <laughs> tweeting about how this how much bullshit you know this thing that just floated by them when they're just contributing to it and so uh now i don't think we're any more immoral today than we were in the past i, I think it's just a, a, an outgrowth of self-centeredness and obtuseness and short-sightedness that leads to um the drift from morality like one of the things that bothers me a lot in public discourse is when people start talking about like well you know business people lie that's just what they do you know or politicians you know they lie that's just that's just what they do and i every time i hear that i'm like you realize when you say that it, what are you like? They have that poster I remember seeing in the '90s. I think actually, some one one of my coworkers had it in their therapy offices. It said something like, "Everything I learned, I learned everything. Every good or every important thing I learned, I learned in kindergarten." Oh yeah, and it listed all these things that you learn in kindergarten. Robert Fulgham. One of them is don't fucking lie. Yeah, it's not a hard thing to follow. Yeah, be honest, be truthful. It's yeah. such a better life. Yeah. Uh, now there are minor exceptions. Like, does this shirt make me look fat but most of the time like you should be honest and politicians should not be lying and ceos should not be lying and capitalists should not be lying and every time we as a society say well you know that's what they do it's like god uh, you know that you create the society you live in and uh so when clients are sitting there in front of me just as my own value i'm just like I, what you're doing is t- deceptive you are lying to somebody and someone that you supposedly love and care about and that's that's wrong and i'm not going to beat around the bush on that i'm not going to shame you i'm not going to say that what you're doing is very unusual cuz lots something like half of people are involved in affairs but what a possibility for honest exploration right like if i'm causing harm and I find myself justifying that or not willing to look at it. Wow. I mean, what learning could take place? Because what you're saying is, let's just put the cards on the table. Yeah. Well, actually, you're saying, let's put the turd on the table <laughs> yeah. and and look at it. But you're not saying, and I'm not going to talk to you if you, lie, or if you have an affair. You're yeah. saying, you have a chance to look at it. This is a hard fucking truth. Yeah. And you could look at it or you could not look at it. But I'm not going to pretend 
that because you pay me, you that this is okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. not going to pretend that I'm not going to pretend that you just took a turd on my floor. You know. Yeah. Uh, we're going to look at that turd. Yeah. That, uh, that smells. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going to let you say it smells like potpourri. I'm going to say it stinks. Yeah. You know. And and it's interesting because I've never heard a client get upset at me when I'm like this. Yeah. Um, it could just be because I have power as a therapist, but yeah. I'd like to think it's because they're like, yeah, it, I'm tapping into what they know. Um, they, they know it to be true. Um, and so other things that I'll get into are I'll explore their values. I'll be like, well, just as a separate kind of related issue, what are your values about, about deception and how would you feel if, if someone cheated on you? Uh, let's just get into that. And they're like, well, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So let, okay. Now that we have your values, which are often quite, uh, common, commonly shared. Right are you living your values? Yeah. And they'll be like, uh, no. And, no. And, and, and they'll go into all these, uh, um, defenses sure. in their mind, like, well, you, well, know, you know, she did it to me or blah, blah, blah. Sure. And, or, you know, the relationship is basically over that, those kinds of statements. And it's like, okay, um, let's look at that. Uh, who modeled that behavior for you? Yeah. <laughs> Often one of their parents. You're talking about the defensiveness, right? Yeah. Who modeled, how'd you learn defensive? Right. What, what's so hard about um, smelling the turd? What's so hard for you? Yeah. 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 And I, abs- so, the, so the biggest part of this that I emphasize, which is I think what you were getting at earlier, which is that everyone has a lot of needs for intimacy. Yeah. And in my experience, a lot, if not most people, are not getting all of their intimacy needs met. Yeah. And when you're in a marriage that's been going on for a long time in a very unintimate way. And then, and you, and what happens inside of a person in that situation for both people is there's this huge hole that they're walking around with that is just dying for some love and attention and, and um, intensity and closeness, you know, that, that enmeshment, that full, like, I get you, and you're looking into someone's eyes, <clears throat> and they're looking into your eyes, and they'll do anything for you. You'll do anything for them. You've never, you haven't disappointed each other yet. You, you know, you're you're gonna you're gonna ride off into the sunset. You know, that's a wonderful feeling. And when you're ten years into a loveless marriage, and you con- conflict all the time, and you haven't had sex in five years, and then you meet someone at work. And they give you that feeling. It's a powerful drug. It cannot be denied. And the so I don't blame people for having the urge and even acting on it per se. But the issue is awareness of that hole that they were walking around with that they didn't know. Yeah. And how do you how do you fill that hole? Right. Do you try to improve your marriage? Uh, that's one option. Or do you break up and start with someone else? Like there's a way to. Th- you know, you deserve to have that void filled for sure. Yeah. Uh, let's be goal oriented and logical about how one gets that. You know, it'd be like you're starving and you're just walking around, you know, and you're like, you don't pay attention to the fact that you're starving. <laughs> you haven't eaten in three days and you're, you're, and you have this massive hunger pain and you're just, you just, well, I don't know what that is. You just keep going on with your life. 
And then you're walking through the park and you see a family barbecuing and you see a hamburger sitting out and you just walk up to the table and you grab it and you eat it. And, you know, and little Johnny is like, hey, that weird man ate my burger. And you're like, what? I was fucking hungry. This is a goddamn good burger. That's not a way to live your life. Like you need to feed yourself earlier. Like it's your responsibility to pay attention to your hunger and, you know, find your own burger to eat. (laughs) This is a great metaphor. On multiple hey. levels, really, if you think about it. <laughs> hey, you know what? You said something a couple minutes ago um, that stuck with me. You're like, we live in the society that we permit and create. I mean, I'm paraphrasing what you said. Yeah. Right? Do you remember the Kitty Genovese thing? Yeah. The diffusion. Remember they did that social experiment about diffusion of responsibility? Yeah. That got debunked, right? Yeah. Like, in multiple ways. Yeah. I listened to a whole podcast series, I think, about that case because it's really, it's really interesting. Yeah. So, so what I was thinking is, okay, so this. So woman, this is the. Are you going to tell the story? Yeah. yeah. This woman gets attacked in front of an apartment building by an ex-lover, and he attacks her. He leaves. He comes back a few minutes later. He attacks her again. She's still outside, like calling. She'd been calling for help, and nobody helped, and a lot, like thirty-seven people heard her. Anyways, um, she, she, um, she, he comes back and he attacks her again and then he leaves. And attacks he com- her with like a knife. A knife, yeah. And then he comes back a third time and all this takes place over about a half an hour and he kills her. And people were in the building were interviewed and, and what was reported to us was they knew that she was in trouble and they just figured somebody else will call and I don't want to make a wave and all this stuff, right? And the social psychologists at the time um, – coined the phrase diffusion of responsibility, which is like somebody else will take care of it. I don't want to be the one that stands out kind of thing. And I'm not responsible because it's somebody else's job. And if there's enough of us, then the sense of responsibility of moral responsibility for what happens to another person that I'm sitting here witnessing is diffused over people and therefore watered down and muted in me. And so I don't act. Whereas if you were the only person and you thought you were the only person who heard what was happening, you would take an action. You would take an action. And it got debunked. And I think, if I'm remembering right, um, the way that people were interviewed, what they said about what happened doesn't match what the researchers said said what happened and to support their own theory, right? Can you, can you remember it? Yeah. From my memory, the podcast said, and they did all their research and actually talked to the people, yeah. that the police, at, so at the, this is the 70s, right? 60s, I think, okay. but I'm not sure. And in New York City. New York City, yeah. And an area of town that wasn't um, very safe or something anyway. Right. And the uh, the people who... So you always have to look at the narrative, which was all... The, the narrative, the initial narrative was all these people did nothing. Yeah. Uh, okay, who who benefits from that narrative? Well the police officers benefit from the narrative because where the fuck were the police officers? Right. You know, if, if the story is none of them called the police and none of these uh, deadbeats did anything, right. then it's not the police's fault. Right. Well, the fact is the police were called yeah. early in the, in the attack. So people did do things. Right. They did call the police. Right. But guess what? When the press goes to get the story, they get the police story. The right. police were the ones telling the story to the press, and then the press went with that, and then the sociologists studied that story. 
Interesting. Later on, and this is before internet and Twitter, so you couldn't yeah. say, um, by the way, I did call the police. Yeah. It, you know, it's just, it's just the, the word of the police officer. Right. So what they did find when they actually interviewed the people that had, were there is not only did people call the police, but they called the police multiple times. And some people did go out there. In fact, one woman was in, was holding Kitty as she died. Oh, one woman, one woman actually went to the victim at the risk of her own life, yeah. and I don't even think she knew her. I think she she was just concerned. concerned. So all those people, regardless of the fact that they were, uh, they knew lots of other people were hearing. A lot of people did things. Sure, right. there were some people who didn't do anything, right? Uh, but a lot of people did. A lot of people did, right? Yeah, and uh, so that gives another sort of sociological phenomenon that is illuminated, which is that narratives are controlled by the power system. You know, right. <laughs> this is me, you know, standing up against the man episode, but uh, we just always have to question the narrative, you know, who's, who's, you know, have you seen Chernobyl? The, the no, I haven't watched that. HBO show. Yeah. That's the major theme is when the government or the power structure controls the narrative then you're shooting yourself in the foot as a society. Oh, yeah, I can see that, right. Yeah. You can't learn. You can't function. Yeah. Unless people are allowed to say what's happening, Right. You, it, everything breaks down and reactors explode. Right. Uh, the Chernobyl uh, disaster uh, had, had nothing to do with the so-called inherent dangerousness of nuclear power. Um, it was that the state of the Soviet Union had a system of suppressing anything that made them look bad. Yeah. And not only to the rest of the world, but to themselves. Right. They would, there would, the KGB would shut down certain studies and ideas that, because the Soviet Union wasn't doing very well in the eighties and they were cutting a lot of corners to save money because they were, they weren't making a lot of, they, they were, they had a hard time keeping their economy going mm -hmm. at the time. And that made them look bad. And so they, they suppressed scientific findings, and then uh, they didn't report certain risks of certain procedures in the nuclear power plant in, in Chernobyl and other places. And, uh, and one thing led to another, and it exploded. And, the, and as they were doing the investigation after the explosion – the the government continued to to try to suppress the the sure. causes sure and the, the hero of the story if i'm spoiling it for anyone uh oh um, uh oh wait wait uh, people have a chance to put has 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 to state has to face that dilemma of yeah whether to put his life in danger essentially by telling the right. truth of what the scientific facts are right and um up you know upholding the power structure of the soviet union at the time um, anyway, well, the reason it came to mind, this whole Kitty Genovese diffusion of responsibility myth is you were saying, you know, we sit and we bitch and we say, well, politicians lie. Well, you know, they all lie. That's just kind of how it is. And we, we perhaps rationalize our, our illusion of the diffusion of responsibility. And we say, it's not my problem. And we don't think, oh, that guy's ripping me off or that gal is ripping me off. We think, oh, it's ripping off the culture, or you know, that's happening somewhere else. But we somehow, maybe, we don't feel a sense of our own personal loss. Like this is happening to me, 
and yeah. and uh, we perhaps think, well, there's you know what, 380 billion people, or 80 million people in the United States, and so who am I? I'm just one little voice, and what action am I going to take? And, you know, but I, 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 you know, like 15 years ago, they didn't have same-sex marriage, and five years ago, they didn't have the Me Too movement, and those were started by individuals. Very few individuals. Very few individuals. Yeah. yeah. The Me Too movement was a, a few individuals who, you know, bravely came forward in a very, uh, uh, what's her name, um, from from uh, the reunion one. <laughs> God, what's her name? She got an Oscar for a Woody Allen movie. Anyway, uh, people are throwing their phones right now. But her and like a few journalists – and a magazine editor, I think the Atlantic, I'm not, or the New Yorker, or some, one of those magazines, who actually said, "Yes, let's run with let's the story," yeah. even though this is potentially uh, going to incur a lawsuit from yeah. Weinstein. Yeah, where we're gonna move, we're gonna go with it because mm-hmm. this has got to be said. Um, <laughs> I just realized I probably just caused. Lots of people to throw their phones since I was like, you know, that thing with that thing, and it could have been this thing. And then um, <laughs> the last thing I'll say about this is, uh, and I so I like what you're saying. And uh, the other part of this is, you know, in terms of what you're saying is, we uh, can, well, I think you said it well, I'll just let it there. But the last thing I'll say about the affair is, I will explain. Explore reasons why they had the affair. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so it could be absolutely a suppressed need for intimacy, yeah. but it can also be suppressed anger and passive aggression. And I've oh, seen yeah. that a lot. Oh, you know? sure, sure. Uh, not in a psychopathic way or sadistic way. It's you're taught at a young age that you can't have anger, and so you don't feel it, but you have it, and you have to express it. And some people will do it through cheating. Having a lack of self. You don't really know who you are and the relationship that you're in, you never really signed up for to begin with. And so cheating doesn't really feel like cheating because you don't really know what you're doing from minute to minute. You don't know how you feel about anything. Revenge is another thing. Sometimes you just are so angry and hurt that you want to get back. Mm -hmm. And another thing I see a lot, and this is probably maybe the most common, is that people will fall out of love. You know, you have kids, you've been with each other for 20 years, and you haven't really loved your spouse for seven years. And maybe you're even questioning whether or not you ever loved them. Mm. And you're just like, um, but you're so scared of divorce, Mm -hmm. and you're also dependent on your spouse in some ways. In this weird way, Mm -hmm. you don't really want to be with them, Mm -hmm. but you, you cannot function And as you're attached, man, yeah, you can't let go. Yeah, (laughs) like it's really hard, and so people will end up cheating because they need their romantic and sexual and relationship needs to be met, but they they can't let go, and and maybe too scared to say to spouse, "I'm in crisis here. I'm really scared," or "Yeah, wow, what's become of us?" or something where they put the card on the table. Yeah, I mean that is frightening. It is. I think everyone can relate to having to walk up to someone and break up with them. Ugh. It is uh, not a good feeling. No. And uh, there's a lot of reasons to avoid that. Sure. And 
another thing that happens with sometimes when this becomes prolonged is the person will just continue to pull away and have affairs as a way of trying to get their spouse to break up with them so they don't have to do it. They don't have to do it, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so let's take a break. Hey, so like, you know what I really like about this conversation is it doesn't balk from accuracy and compassion is the natural outgrowth of accuracy. And at the same time, we're not talking about blowing sunshine up anybody's butt. It's just like, man, here's the truth. This is painful. This is harmful. And it's also understandable. In other words, it can be understood what led to what led to what led to this thing that you're doing that's like hurting your partner, right? It's like a nice balanced look at an accurate look at what happens. I like that. That's better than I could ever say it. I'll just end it with that. Let's take a break. What do you say, Bob? Sure. All right, we're back from the break. Uh, this is often when I start to plug Bob's practice, but he's full fuck- <laughs> fuckers out there. You can't hire him. Oh, no, no, no. Listen, call. Okay. Things change. Things change. But he's full, so just don't bother him. <laughs> <laughs> he deserves to be full. Uh, become a patron on patreon.com, please. That's always nice of you. People ask uh, on Discord if you're going to join ever on Discord. And I always say that uh, Bob doesn't know what Discord is. and Bob does not know what Discord is. What the hell is Discord? It's an internet forum chat scenario thing. Oh. And it involves the internet, which you don't really involve yourself in. I have an email. Yeah. <laughs> you respond to email pretty quick. I'm uh, not joining Discord, far as I know. <laughs> but you don't do Facebook. No, not really. In fact, uh, when Bob just came over to my house... yeah. Uh, I was telling about my. Uh, the, I'm start, I have to call her something because whenever I say my wife Stacy, it always sounds funny. So I'm gonna start calling her the podcast wife. The podcast wife. Yeah, interesting. I mean, this has a nice little ring to it. So the podcast wife, she is uh, involved in a lot of art projects, and she 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 hasn't in the past, but she's recently started to actually. She's been doing art for a long time, but yeah. she finally is starting to share, it, and she's winning all these awards and. She's selling stuff uh, so cool. left and right. And, uh, and uh, if you're interested in looking, I think her website is stacyhonda.com. I'm not sure. But I was I was talking about it in passing with Bob, and he had this confused face. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. You're not on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, you have your friends who aren't on the platform where you post a lot. And right. you just have to remember, oh, that's right. Like, you have no I idea. I get the newsletter. You have no idea what's happening in my no. life. Anyway, um, Stacy won an award. Yeah. And we went to the Space Needle for our anniversary the other day. Oh, and happy anniversary. It, there was the uh, the glass floor thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wouldn't, yeah. It's pretty harrowing. Oh, and it's gosh. rotating, too. You know, it's the, re- it's the oh, restaurant. Yeah. So oh, you're, yeah, on you... a, you're on a rotating glass floor, and you're, it's freaky. I like a view of all the places where I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So yeah, join us on Discord on Thursdays at 2 p.m. in which Bob does not join us because he doesn't know what the internet is. Um, you might actually be involved in YouTube Live sometimes because I, I might want because I on Discord people ask questions and oh it's like a live show they ask questions they type them in or whatever yeah oh interesting and I reply live. by typing and it's hard because I have to type very quickly. 
Oh, this is not a talk thing. It's a type thing. It's a type thing. Oh, wow, man. So I want to switch over to YouTube, actually, at some point, so I can just respond verbally. Yeah. Because I think that would be easier. But anyway. Um, so I have another thing for you here. Uh, patron Adam also asked, how do you help people who have a scenario that won't get better, like terminal illness? Would existential stuff be useful depending on their beliefs? What do you think, Bob? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What sort of things have you seen with clients along these lines? Would they have problems that won't get better? Intractable problems like health problems. Um, um, well, you know, the ideas are coming in kind of fast. I'm thinking about that chapter from Love's Executioner, if Rape Were Legal. Do you remember that one with Carlos? Uh, vaguely. Yeah. He has terminal cancer. And uh, the question in that book is, can you do good work with somebody who's dying? And um, that's plug in Irv now. I love Irv. Um, Love's Executioner is a really great book. It's the second chapter in that book. I know it's a horrible, provocative title. It's kind of a horrible beginning of a story, but it's a lovely story about what's possible for a person who's facing mortality, um, uh, transformation, and so forth. The other thing I'm thinking is... um, you, we live in America, which is like worships the idea of change and isn't so good at things like acceptance. And one of the things that's true about acceptance is, A, it's necessary if you ever want to make change. And B, people that come to accept the things as they are actually have the miraculous possibility of new stuff occurring to them that they never would have deemed possible if they hadn't learned to accept what is. So we should not think that helping a person accept their circumstance is futile or a waste of time because you can't change it. We live in a world and Americans are really good at it. American culture, really good at change, really good at invention, innovation, all that stuff. And optimism. Yeah. And not that great at acceptance that things are as they are. In fact, I think we often lump acceptance in with like passivity and um, giving up and um, futility and so forth. And um, uh, other cultures, much, much, much more sophisticated when it comes to the thing of acceptance. And I was talking about this in my class yesterday and I was saying, you know, you know that, maybe you know this one, you know that one where you like, you, you, you get a box, you, you get a box made out of wood and you drill a hole in it and you put an acorn in the boxes and you nail it shut, right? And the hole is big enough that a raccoon can get their uh, hand in it or their paw in it, but can't, not big enough to drag out the walnut. Right? So there's this walnut and this raccoon with their hand in there and they want the walnut, they want the walnut and they can't pull it out. And they try and try and try and try in 500 different ways and there's no way they're getting that walnut out of that box. Right? It's just stuck in there. If I want a walnut, one of the things I have to do is I have to accept that this walnut ain't coming. If I want a walnut, I got to go somewhere else. Or I have to get a different kind of nut. Or yeah, but I'm not having this nut. And if I think that the only way to have a happy life is to pull this walnut out, I'm fucked. But if I'm willing to accept the pain of letting go of this walnut, um, then the possibility of other things occurs to me that, and it cannot occur to me unless I'm willing to let go. And this happened to me when I was getting over a relationship. It's like, I would just refuse. I knew the relationship was over. I wasn't crazy, but I refused to accept that it was over. And as a result of that, I got stuck in grief for six years. Like, you know, like what do they call it? Complicated bereavement, right? Where you don't actually get better. You just kind of feel like shit. Anyways, um, so you were, what does that mean? You couldn't accept it. It means, well, intellectually, I know it's over in my heart. What I'm saying to myself is I'll never be happy again. I'll never be happy again unless we get back together. Was that something you had conscious control over that you could have changed at the time? I don't think anybody has conscious control over how they feel. 
Like if you feel hopeless, you feel hopeless, but it doesn't mean that you're doomed. And so what I did is I just like, it wasn't that I just recognized that I felt hopeless. I did active things to keep the relationship alive in my heart. So for instance, um, she drove a black Honda Civic hatchback and every black Honda Civic hatchback that I saw in Seattle was her car. And I, they were everywhere at the time. I mean, I, I suppose they're everywhere now. It's a popular color. It's a popular car, hatchback, popular style. And anyways, one time it was so intense. I drove by the Fiddler Inn up there in North Seattle and I hallucinated her license plate number when I saw one of these cars and I drove around the block. Did I tell you this story? No. No. So I hallucinate her license plate number. I drive around the block and I check and it's like, it's actually not her car, which is fucking staggering to me. Right. So six years in, every time I see one of these cars, it's not like I just see the car. It's like my heart rips out of my chest and grabs the bumper and gets dragged down the road. But how is that unacceptance? Because to me, uh, that's normal to be your heart or our attachment system attached to an individual. Yeah, it is normal. And to have waves or echoes or pangs of loss six years later. No, you're right. So what? what's the... What's the part of you that you had control over that you're saying you wish you would have done differently? It's just this hard, willful knot inside me that refused to let go of the walnut. So you had control over that. Control, I, I, that, word's, that word's tricky. Because, you know, the raccoon has the control to let go of the walnut. They can, but somehow they find themselves not doing it. Right. Right. So, yeah, can I let it go? Yeah. Do I really know the future? No. Do I accept that I don't know the future? Not really. So part of it was allowing at least for a narrative that you don't really know the future yeah. and maybe things will even be better. And this past thing might actually not be the only road to happiness. Although a part of your attachment system was still uh, you know, naturally having those feelings, yeah. you're saying that you were... You're, and this is, you're actually not saying this, I'm interpreting of what sure, you're saying. Sure, go for it. Your conscious mind was going along with those feelings as if oh, yeah. they were uh, the truth. The truth, yeah. And so you're saying if you could go back in time to year two or something, you would say, okay, great, Bob, you have these feelings and you're, it's what? sad and it hurts and you're still grieving and uh, it's also not healthy or it would be more healthy if you recognize that maybe the feelings aren't a guide of reality, you know, the full reality. I can't predict the future. I don't know what's going to happen. But is that what you would say you would go back in in terms of like going towards acceptance? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say you can't help but feel sad, but what you can do is you can let go of inhibiting your grieving by... So, So for me, what it ended up being was this. I conditioned my brain to see that car and it couldn't stop that. That just happened. But what I said to myself, and I said this actively, I think I even said it out loud in my car once when I was driving. I said, if you're really going to accept that this relationship is over, in this present moment, you do not have this relationship, what would you do? And I decided what I would do is I would turn my head back to where I'm going, and I'd just go up 15th Avenue and go home. That's where I was headed. So a part of you was orienting your soul towards that car and that human. Yeah. You, like, you would see the car and you would think, ooh, yeah. what, there's... a an urge to do something. I got to call her or go up there and see if it's her. And right. Right. That if I see the car, it's the, it's the, it's, it's a, it's, it actually has meaning or value. Just, just seeing the car is like, Oh, maybe we'll get back together. It's all, it's all non-rational, right? 
But she'll see me for who I really am, and if I just get her to... Right, right, like the end of an 80s movie. Uh, you know, like, with, yeah. With the boombox. With the boombox, right? So, so what happened was when I did that, when I started doing that, I, it was like we just broke up. All the grief, all the sadness. It was like, and it was, six, it was literally six years later, and it, it was only an eight-month relationship, and, it, and all the sadness came as if we had just broken up that minute. And I was sad for a good two months, but I kept doing it. Every time I see the car and my heart goes out, it's like, just turn your head where you're going and let yourself feel sad. And I did. I felt really sad. And um, that was a long time ago. About a year after I started doing that, um, first off, I stopped seeing black Honda Civic hatchbacks. I, I did stop seeing them. I mean, I don't. I presume they're still everywhere, but I don't. I don't my brain doesn't like um, um, reach for them. And I met Colleen. And I don't think, I know this, I would not have had room in my heart for a relationship with Colleen if I hadn't let myself grieve the loss of the relationship with the other person. And uh, I would not be married. And, you know, the fact that it took six years, just sort of the way my life unfolded, it put me in a position to have a life with Colleen. Whereas if I'd done that grieving earlier... Who knows what would have become of my future? I don't know if I would have bumped into Colleen or not, because you know, way leads to way leads to way, and every every possibility, you know, you go a different path or whatever. So, I don't have regret about meeting Colleen and having life go that way. I do have regret about the wasted time. I was with you during that time. You were indeed. I was with you before your relationship. How with... did I seem? Um. You, well, when we would hang out, you would be happy, but I knew you were hurting and you, you would talk about the fact you were hurting Yeah. and you seemed dissatisfied with your dating life. Yeah. Although you were living it pretty hard. We were doing that. I was doing that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You and I, we figured I dated about 2% of the available population. <laughs> yeah. That was five years of of uh, online dating. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, I, I can't remember the number. You, th- I mean, do you want to share the number? I, I, I think remember- it was between two and three hundred. Oh, I thought it was five hundred. It might have been. I don't know. It's yeah. been a while. It was hundreds of women that yeah. that Bob had online dated, mostly for, first dates. Well, okay. Yeah. For uh, you know that six year period. Yeah. And it was at the beginning of internet dating. It was the beginning of Match. dot com. That whole thing. Yeah. And uh, I remember you were pretty sad about it. And although, God, it was just eight months, I don't think I realized that, but that makes sense to me. Because actually, I didn't know her that well. Oh, yeah. Because you were with her a lot, but it was only for that short amount just of time. Just short time. And and you moved in together, didn't you? Oh, really fast. Yeah. And uh, so that complicated things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just remember, um, being really happy for you when you, cause I thought the two of you worked pretty well together from my distance perspective. Oh, yeah. Right. She was pretty lively and mm-hmm. jokey and blah, yeah. blah, blah. But I also, oh, now it's all coming back to me. Cause this was what, like 20 years ago or something. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was, it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, I remember that you were um, 
you would talk about the conflicts the two of you oh, get. Yeah, bad fights. And I remember thinking, whoa, those sound intense. Yeah, they I remember were. Uh, I and I it was surprising to me because I did I couldn't imagine the two of you being that way with anybody. Uh-huh. And those stories I just remember just being like, wow, that that sounds pretty intense, yeah. you know. Um both of us trauma survivors. Yeah. So and I think you framed it that way. Oh. You were in therapy the whole time then too and and you oh, were yeah. always pretty aware of your process and I anyway, I think it's a beautiful story. I'm sure it was helpful for the listeners or meaningful for listeners to hear that. Um, Did we slide into a tangent? Uh, of grief, um, which I'm, I'm glad we went into. It's interesting, uh, which is relevant, I guess, to what this, this guy is a- asking. But this is one of the nice things about this podcast is I don't think I ever would have heard you tell me that version of that story unless we were recording this for the podcast. I mean, we have some pretty honest conversations. Yeah, we do. Normally, but there's something about the podcast format that allows for those sorts of things to shine more somehow. Yeah, it's true. We have different kind of talk when we do the podcast together than we do when we're just, you know, whatever. And I feel like the podcast conversations are changing. You're getting more comfortable, frankly, and which is great. And Mm -hmm. I know the listeners really like that. Um, They like it for a number of reasons. One, you're uh, extremely wise. Oh, thanks. You're smart funny um if you ever get single again i can write your match dot with all nice. these adjectives yeah um, that, but and uh and you're a therapist so one of the functions that i never realized until uh, making the podcast and, and some people have actually said this about you is that it's comforting for people clients to not only hear that they're therapists or human beings and not robots but also, if a therapist is struggling with this, mm. then surely it must be normal. Yeah. And uh, that's powerful to people, right? Good. It's sort of like when you see your doctor smoking a cigarette. <laughs> right. <laughs> Over a glazed donut. <laughs> yeah. Just like, man, you know, if, if he or she is doing that, like, yeah. we're all doomed. It's yeah. like, we all, it's like, it's hard, you know. Yeah. My, so, my old supervisor used to say, we're all turkeys in the same turkey soup. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. But the story you told, I mean, geez, you know, the, the grief oh. and the, and I think about that a lot because um, the, uh, I mean, answer me this. It's been 20 years. Yeah. Are you still kind of grieving that, that loss? Oh, great question. Um, I suppose there are moments, but um, it's really faded in the last 10 years. It really has. And actually, my perspective on it has shifted quite a bit um, from kind of bitterness about what happened to I can see what was hard about having me as a partner. And I feel feel bad about um, the ways in which I'm difficult. And I, I feel like I have awareness of that now, more awareness of that than I certainly uh, than I had then. Um, and um, it's I, it's like it's in my rearview mirror now. It's still there, but it's not live for me. And um, I guess I feel humbled by it, um, but I don't feel wounded 
like I used to. Like like when when that ended, Kirk, I a part of me died. You know, like the trauma response died, and I felt that way for a long time. I was in a relationship with somebody for a year mm-hmm. um, after, and, her. after her, after uh, her, and in fact, you said her name when you were on the phone walking in because so Bob was on the phone walking into my house just now. And he accidentally used her name in a different context. I'll tell you later, but um, you weren't actually referring to her. But her her name actually is a is a term for something else. Really? And it, we'll talk about it later. Oh yeah, okay. We'll talk. About, I've, I've, now I'm dying to know. And, and I wanted to actually say it, but then I forgot. And it's funny how we I, actually the conversation <laughs> gravitated towards her again. Anyway. <laughs> Anyways, um, um, I don't feel dead. I don't feel the like the life isn't real or you know how like they have that um, what do they call it in the PTSD diagnosis where you're like um, foreshortened sense of um, future is that what it is yeah I used to have that and I don't feel that way anymore and I'm surprised actually because I was I believed at the time that um, that I had lost something fundamental and that it wasn't me anymore wow was she like your first major relationship Mm, yeah, sort of. I mean, she was definitely the first past a certain age. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'd had two relationships previous, and uh, one of them particularly meaningful and poignant for me, uh, and another one less so. And um, this one, uh, wow. Was like an adult. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm an adult now. Yeah. Because you would have been, what, like 30 or something? Yeah, like actually, I was. I was 30. Yeah. I, you know, I can cut this out, but have you talked to her since? No, not even once. Have you, do you know anything about what's going on with her? Um, I know she moved to, uh, out of state and then, um, she moved back and actually that's it. She was a therapist. She went to school with us. I don't think she ever practiced much as a therapist. Oh yeah. Okay. She grief counselor. Oh, okay. Uh, no, no, sorry. Not a grief counselor. Cause that's a therapist. I think that she, her work is in um, um, facilitating uh, uh, grief support groups. She was a graduate student with us. Yeah. Did you meet her in graduate school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I don't remember her from graduate school. Wait, yeah, did think, she graduate earlier? Than... No, she graduated with us. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so the way you describe it as this, I don't think I've ever heard such a rich description of grief like that before. Oh, really? Yeah. That's the most awful thing I've ever been through. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. And I have to say, if I'm going to be honest, (laughs) um, I still think there's a part of you that shames yourself for having normal grief during that time. I mean, you didn't say that directly, but um, like... Because the way you were framing it at first of just like, you know, six years later, when I saw her car, I would have this reaction and I'm thinking, well, that's normal. You know, like I I, I don't think it's, I think that's extremely normal. You know, if, if she had died, for example, and you saw a black hatchback Honda Civic, you would th- oh you'd miss her you know what i mean there'd be a thought about her sure and we wouldn't shame that but somehow you know being dumped it we're supposed to you know get over it faster or something oh yeah no i i appreciate what you're saying and i i think you're right but th- i don't have shame about the grief what i have shame about is um my inhibition of it 
that's and that's what's so interesting too is that uh there you know whatever word we put to it you had the one version of grief until the six year point and then you had a different version of grief mm-hmm. that felt more healthy to you yeah and and wouldn't have have been nice if you could have got to that six year point earlier. Um, And this will be the last question I'll ask about this. If we could actually go back in time and talk to you, Mm. could we convince you? What was it possible to have that point earlier? That's a great question. And I think it sort of goes to a little bit to Adam's question. Um, I, and the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. We'd have to be really convincing. Well, I think probably the way to be convincing about such a thing is to not try to take it away, but to instead validate. And and, and as we were talking earlier, put the turd on the table. You're You're refusing to accept that this is over, and you're also refusing to accept that you don't know the future. You want to believe somehow it's important to believe that uh, life can't get better. Somehow that idea has lodged itself and it's important to believe it. Do you want us to pay attention to that and be curious about it? Which would be a lot different from, you know, you really got to move on, buddy. Because actually I think that's hackneyed. Right. Yeah. Move on. I have no idea what that means. Uh, It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I mean, what it in practice means is suppress. And don't bother me with right. this, you know, depressing talk anymore. Yeah. I'd say that my problem was suppression, not grief. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And you know, you were a practicing successful therapist at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like uh, all turkeys in the same turkey soup. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the memories I have of that place that you lived in, in... Wallingford? Oh, yeah, right. Was we were having a card, playing cards party. (laughs) And I remember that. Travis, one of our friend's kids, would have been 10 years old at the time or something. Yeah, that's right. And I decided I was going to climb a tree. Oh, I remember that. That was my 31st birthday party. Okay. Yeah. And I was wearing one of her necklaces. You were? Yeah. Oh, I don't remember this. Oh. So in her in her bathroom, she had all these crazy huge necklaces uh-huh. with huge beads. Like think African uh-huh. uh, beads and, and giraffes, like huge, huge necklace. And I was in the bathroom and I just I just started wearing one of them <laughs> at your party. And then I decided I was gonna climb a tree. You don't remember this. I remember the tree. And as I'm getting down from the tree, the, there's a last little uh, jump. Like I had to jump down. Uh-huh. I couldn't like, you know, climb. I had to, I had to, the last branch I had to jump off of because I'm a tree climber as a kid. I it got into my head that night. Yeah. The necklace caught on a branch. And as I was jumping out of the tree, I almost strangled myself. Oh. But the necklace snapped. Oh. And all these beads... <laughs> You don't remember this? I don't remember this. All the beads went flying. All So this is in the city where you have parallel parked cars. Uh-huh. You have that parking strip grass area, and then you have the sidewalk, and then you have this 
it was an apartment. It was like a house converted into an apartment building. Yeah, or something. that's right. You had like the Fonzie room. It was we did. Like we had up like and the out, Fonzie uh-huh. up and outside set of stairs. Yeah, and so all these beads went all over that parking strip. Some of them were so small it was like, but some of them were big enough that you could. And I just, I can't believe you don't remember this because it was you. Your brain is like a trap, and yeah. and I felt so bad because. She, she never gave me permission to wear that necklace. No. And I just destroyed it. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things I still have is uh, somewhere in my attic is a selfie. Me, you, Travis, and Jay. Yeah. Right either before or after you climbed around in that tree. Yeah, I have that picture on oh, my you computer. Have that too? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what I remember. Wow. I also remember going. Did, did, was there fallout from the necklace destruction? Did you hide it, or what happened? No, I I fessed to it. Right, I mean, it, everyone was there. So, uh-huh. but I uh, plus I'm an honest person. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I just remember apologizing like ten or fifteen times, and I got the impression that she was cool about it, but also miffed, oh. so, at least somewhat. Uh huh. And I just, yeah, I just felt just so bad about it. Um. You know, particularly back then when we're all kind of poor and a oh, necklace yeah. like that ain't cheap. No. And I'm not going to replace it because mm-hmm. I don't have the money. Right. And, it, you know, it was it was a prized possession that she had hanging, like, almost on display in her bathroom. Right. It wasn't in a drawer. It was, like, hanging Hang. in her bathroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, uh, I forgot about that moment. moment. Yeah. Yeah. Until... Now. I'm pretty sure I have the details right. Uh, I'm just so surprised you don't have any I, memory of that. That I don't remember. I remember some other things, but not that. Yeah. I also remember going with her and you and all the other guys to see Face Off at a um, drive-in theater in Oh, Auburn, I remember that. In Auburn. Yep. We went to a... We were at a pool. Yeah, like, Bish's house. Oh, Bish's house. Um, her name is... Bishop. Bishop. Kathleen. Everybody Bishop. calls her Bishop. Yeah. Um, and then we went to see Face Off with um, um, what's his face and what's his face? John Travolta, Nicolas Cage. There you go. My brother Pete was there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what's his name from Coast Guard? Oh, Keith. No, no. The other guy. Dan? No. The other guy. Sean. No. Scott. No. God. What was his name? Anyway. Good looking guy. Tall? No. Blonde, I think. Lived down there. Lived in Auburn? Oh, no. Dean? No. No? God. It's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, we had kind of a crew of friends back then, and um, that was a fun day, I remember. Yeah. Obviously, Mike and Beth were there. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're just reminiscing Rambling, about the old yeah. days. Poor Adam. Um, so getting back to Adam's question, which we'll wrap up here. Um, how do you help people who have a have a scenario that won't get better. Oh, I had another thought about that. Good. Which is, it is hard to sit with people who are in pain, physical pain, emotional, psychic pain, whatever kind of pain you think of. And I think it makes us uncomfortable and you're not immune from that if you're a therapist. And uh, um, what's required is a willingness to sit with pain and the unsolvable. And that is tense. Yeah, well put. We, as a culture, as you were pointing out, have this notion that 
anything can get better. Yeah. Uh, It will get better. Hashtag it gets better. And sometimes it ain't getting better. It ain't getting better. Sometimes hashtag it's only going to get worse. And the the uncomfortable with that uh, drives a lot of our – the discomfort with that drives a lot of our uh, dysfunction – um, one of which is the uh, the shame and the stuckness that people go through when they're faced with things like this. As you said, you know, health issues. I don't think I've ever had a client who was terminally ill. I've certainly had clients who had family members who were terminally ill, mm-hmm. but not a. But I. But I have had. So the first thing I thought of was with health, was health issues. Mm-hmm. You know, someone has back pain and it's been diagnosed and. It's just the it's just their life now. I mean, unless there's some major medical advance in the next twenty years, they're going to be in pain all the time, or they have fibromyalgia, yeah. or they have MS, yeah. and it's just not going to get better. It's they're stuck with it. You know, mm-hmm. it might get better. There's things you can do, but at least for today, mm-hmm. it ain't going away, and there's nothing that they can do. And the American culture, or whatever we want to say. Uh, the tendency to not accept that can compound the suffering and the acceptance of it or the letting it in or the grief process is the way I'd put it is you, so say you are diagnosed and you, for five years you've had back pain and you're the physician, you've tried everything and the physicians are like, you're, you're likely to have this the rest of your life. Well, at whatever point you realize that or you're faced with that that information, then begins the grief process of the future that you thought you were going to have. Yeah. All of us have this notion of tomorrow is another day. Right. Tomorrow, the podcast wife will be alive and she'll kiss me. Yeah. Uh, Tomorrow, the city will still be in existence. Seattle will... Tomorrow, the garbage people will come pick up the garbage. We all have this sense. We don't put it into words a lot of times. But when people have these incursions, suddenly the the future is all completely painted in a new brush where, okay, so tomorrow, even in the distant future, I'm still going to be in pain. Because, you know, when we get sick, for example, we have the flu and we're throwing up and we're in pain even at the darkest moments, you have the notion in your head that this will get better. Yeah. You're, you'll get, you'll, it's hard sometimes to imagine, you know, if you've been sick for a month or something, but you have this notion like, well, you know, one day I'll be able to pull myself out of this. Right. And that is a totally different experience than, nope, this ain't going away. In fact, it's probably just going to get worse. Yeah. That is an incredibly powerful realization to absorb and requires a tremendous amount of grief uh, processing, meaning that you talk about it, you get support, you ask questions, you think about the implications, you think about the meaning of it all. You know, what does this mean that I now have this pain living with me all the time? Pain is my co-pilot for the rest of my life. What does that mean exactly? Uh, what am I going to do with my life given that this is happening? 
how am I going to acclimate everyone around me to the fact that I'm going to be complaining about something that they can't see? Um, do I complain about it or do I just keep it myself because I don't want to be a stick in the mud? Right. I mean, that's a big deal. Right. Like, how do I be with this? How do, yeah. Yeah. Right. I recommend no one keep it to themselves. In fact, I, I have a family member who's in a, a tremendous amount of pain frequently. Mm. And whenever I see her, the first thing I ask her is how much pain are you in? Yeah. And she'll be, and she'll be like, oh, thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, blah, 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 blah. And I can just see her feel more in the room because it someone's someone's acknowledging it right. and it's not hard for me to do is the thing i just ask the question how's the pain going right and i just listen and she talks for 30 seconds and i it makes me feel better too because i you know i for a, sometimes i won't ask and i'll just wonder is she in pain because she probably is and I don't know. It just feels tense to not know if a loved one is in pain. You know, you just want to at least let it out into the room. You know, let's, let's look at the turd. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I should name this episode. Look at the turd. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so it involves uh, quote unquote acceptance, which is not just giving up. It's living with the reality and really, going with it. And also an ex existential exploration, as you say, Adam, um, what's the meaning of your life? Yeah. Uh, for some people, for example, they have been living their life for everyone else. And they've been ambitious about job and career and looking good. Then they get in a car accident and they're in tremendous amount of pain. And now, and that sucks, and they're in pain, and pain sucks. But now all of a sudden, they're like, so I, I, everything's different to me now. I have a whole different outlook on life. And one might say the car accident, even though is horrible and the pain I'm in is horrible, I now see the world in a, more, in a better way, which is I don't want to spend my life in meetings at Microsoft oh, right. trying to make money for stockholders. I don't want to go to parties that I don't want to go to just to say that I was there. I don't want to focus on fashion as much as I used to. Uh, I want to live life now that I have it because five years from now, I might actually not be able to walk anymore given this injury. So I, I got to live my life. And, I, and I'm glad in some ways that this happened to me because... Now I see it, and I, if this hadn't happened to me, I'd still be wasting my life in that other way. Having said that, I'm not saying that Microsoft people are wasting their lives. I'm just saying that um, when people go through things like this, it can be what they call post-traumatic growth in, in the industry. Oh, I didn't know that was a term. That's yeah. a good term. Yeah. It's a known phenomenon. A sizable percentage of people who go through trauma or massive losses report uh, post-traumatic growth. Awesome. Yeah. And that's something that through therapy you can explore. Mm -hmm. As a therapist, you never say something like, so let's talk uh, about post-traumatic growth. <laughs> You're just like, let's talk about it. Because yeah. when people talk about it, they eventually gravitate. It's a human universal that we want to gravitate towards meaning. We want to gra We gravitate towards post-traumatic growth. We gravitate towards good and healthy 
and with enough support and space to rattle around the different ideas, uh, eventually people will find themselves there. And you never have to point people in that direction. And it's quite annoying when therapists do that. It's very demeaning, right? It's invalidating. Yeah. Like, well, let's get over the bad part and let's get to the good part. Um, and if you're not a therapist out there, this is, and I've talked about this before, is when you know someone is grieving, pay attention to those people. Uh, it's rare that you can pay too much attention to someone and their grief and their loss and their difficulties. Particularly when it's pain, honestly, because it, it's one, it's a horrible, you know, my dog died recently. I talked about it in the podcast. That's a horrible thing. And, and I think about her all the time. And every time I walk into the house, like I'm guessing even for you, when you walk in the house, you're, it, you just think, her oh, where, is palpable. where's the dog? Oh, you know, that's right. She died. Yeah. And it's a horrible thing for sure. But I can forget it. I can, you know, I can spend a day oh, yeah. doing something else fun and um, enjoyable that doesn't remind me of the of my dog or doesn't at least introduce me to the pain. When you're in physical pain, it's all the time. You can't get away from it. There's no respite. There's no, well, I'm going to try to forget it today. It's all the time. And our brains are massively set up to pay attention to pain. You know, all of us can relate to this, right? Sure. You have a hangnail or uh, you stub your toe. Right. Or... A toothache. You can't a, leave alone. God, a toothache. Yeah. Or an earache or something. Oh, earaches are the worst. You just can't... A headache. You yeah. can't function. It's... Your brain is designed to shut everything else off and say, um, you are in pain. This requires your attention. Yeah. Do something about it, pal. No, no, no. You're not going to enjoy your life. No, no, no. You're not going to get sleep. No, no, no. You're not going to feel love. You're not going to enjoy this hamburger. You're not going to, you know, no, you're not going to go for a walk. You are, you're in pain. You got to pay attention to this. And if you're in pain all, so when we're in acute pain, fine. But when you're in pain all the time, like, you know, that's, I can't, I, I was in a mild amount of that. I had back pain. Oh, back pain, yeah. Uh, for about a year. And it was pretty mild on the scale of things. You know, whenever I would go to the physical therapist, they would, on a scale from one to 10, I'd be like, oh, I don't know, probably like a two. And they'd be like, huh, two? Because I don't think they got a lot of twos coming. <laughs> Not a whole lot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was minor. It was concerning, you know. But sure. anyway, and it was, I, I got a, just a tiny crumb of what it would be like oh. for that. And man, it, uh, I, I feel so bad for people. And it's just so sad that we, you know, we live in this high-tech world, but we still can't really do anything about the pain. Can't you know? do anything about it. There's some things you can do, but for the most part, it's just a matter of accepting and living with it mm -hmm. and not fighting it. And uh, anyway, have you ever had anything like that before? Oh, back pain, yeah. Like ongoing? Ongoing, yeah. Several, several, uh, a few months of back pain. Uh, oh, yeah, you three, told four me about summers that. ago. Yeah. It was muscle. Yeah. 
muscle spasms and ugh, excruciating. Why did you have that? Oh, uh, well, uh, where do you want to begin? Um, my dad was ill. Um, I think my back pain, I think a lot of people's, though, we're probably going to get some feedback about this one, is uh, repressed anger. <laughs> I think that's probably what it is for me. Interesting. Yeah. So it was completely stress-related, yeah. psychological. Yeah. Psych- yeah, psychosomatic, but in the actual way, not that it's in your head. It's yeah. not in my head. It's in my body. Yeah. It just has, it doesn't have a physical cause. It has a, a psychological right. roots in my, my, uh, my head. So, um, and it went away. Yeah, yeah. Physical therapy and a lot of stretching and treating and so forth. Um, and therapy? Therapy, therapy? Uh, for, that's a good question. No, not, not, um, not directly anyways. Um, Self-therapy? Yeah, good question. No, I can't say that either. Oh, you know what? Yeah, there was some, um, not formal things, but some informal things. Like I, I was uh, wrestling. I was having a hard time with a couple of things in my world. Um, and uh, coming to terms, I hate that. It's such a pat way to talk about it. Anyways, the pain uh, alleviated. It still flares, but it's, oh, really? under certain circumstances, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess I know what this is. <laughs> so... In the similar way that an old coot has a trick knee that says a storm is a coming, <laughs> you have a back spasm that says you, it's have, you, have, here. Su- you have suppressed anger. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So the cat says it's time to end. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Mm-hmm.